Good morning, everybody. What a privilege it is to gather together and to open the Word of God. So get your Bibles ready. And if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat back in front of you. And the bookmark in there should be right where I'm preaching unless second or first hour people messed with it, okay? So we're talking today about the devastating gospel. And I realize that's not a word we usually put with gospel, devastating. We would say the gospel saves, the gospel unites, even the gospel divides, but devastation is not usually the word that you put with gospel. And the idea is that the gospel is either going to devastate your sin or your soul. If you are a Christian, you're trusting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf on the cross, then the gospel is going to devastate your sin. You're progressively going to be more like Christ as God works in your life. But if you are an unbeliever and you have heard the gospel message, then the gospel is going to tell you some things about yourself that you don't want to hear. If you're rejecting the gospel, the gospel is going to devastate your soul. Now, devastate is a strong word. We use it with strong things. We, we talk about a devastating earthquake you know, that just flattens a city, or we talk about a, a devastating hurricane. We talk about devastating activities or devastating events that happen. Just recently, there was flooding in Texas, and a lady and her four great-grandchildren were swept away in the flooding, killed. That's devastating news for a family to hear. Today, though, the, the devastating gospel, that the gospel will devastate your soul or your sin. Romans 1.16 tells us that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it's speaking of a power that is devastatingly effective against sin in the lives of those who come to faith in Christ. The word power in Greek is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from. And it is speaking of a dramatic, devastatingly powerful, explosive change that takes place in your life when you become a believer. You get salvation. But if you're an unbeliever and you hear the gospel and you reject it, you are in the context of condemnation. Condemnation. So I want you to stand with me if you're able. And as a church, I, I, I want us to have a reverence for the word of God and what God has to say that spills over into every aspect of our lives. And standing up doesn't automatically give you reverence for God and his word. It is a biblical practice, but not every time people open up the word in the Bible did they stand up. But I have a stand because I think it calls us to, to attention in a sense that we have been living our entire week hearing man's words, many of which are against the gospel and against Jesus. And I think the gift of having printed Bibles 
is awesome. God has granted us to be able to have Bibles we hold in our hands. We have electronic Bibles. But you never want the accessibility of the Bible to get you to the point where you start thinking that the Bible isn't as important as it really is. Because this is the word of God, and if you're a Christian, you believe that this is from God, this is inspired of God, and it is inerrant and infallible, and it is absolutely, positively, completely different than man's word that gets broken and gets thrown around. So I want us to stand in reverence for God and his word, and I, I really hope that that reverence would spill over into all aspects of our lives. And I realize that some of you have been devastated by events in your life. And some of you are, are hurting deeply, and so the word of God gives believers encouragement and and reminds us of our hope in Christ. It reminds us not to take life lightly. And I realize we get caught up in a lot of trivial things. In fact, some of you may have brought trivial issues into this place with you today. And they have nothing to do with the gospel. They have nothing to do with eternal life. But we get wrapped up in trivial things. And my prayer and my hope is as we read the word and as we trust the Holy Spirit to change us, that those trivial things will be put in the, in, the, in the place they should be put in your life. And that the word of God and, and, and Jesus and the gospel will have center stage in your life. That Jesus would come to have first place in everything as Colossians 1.18 says. So I'm going to read. We're going to trust God to change us by the word. Verses 42 to 52 in Acts chapter 13. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, thank you that we can come today and that we could hear your word. Just the, the, the privilege you have given us to, to get up this morning and to, 
to get ready and to come over here, and, and no one's trying to get us to not come here. We are not under, under persecution where people are, are harassing us and not letting us get into church. Thank you that we have the privilege of bringing our Bibles here, and we have the privilege of hearing your word, and, and Lord, may we not take these gifts for granted. Lord, use your word by your spirit to change us and do work that only you can do. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. I, I laugh when I say please. I laugh inwardly every time I say please be seated because I think you can stand up if you want, but don't lock your knees, right? And don't block anyone's view. So you can stand up if you'd like, but I think you'd rather sit, right? Okay, the devastating gospel. The gospel is going to devastate your soul or your sin. The gospel devastates sin's power in the life of a believer. Now, I realize if you're a believer, you're like, I am battling sin every single day. We are. But God has set us free in Christ. Now we are free from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. And we are free from the penalty of sin. We are not held to pay our own penalty for sin. If you're not a believer, you are not free from the power of sin. You can't do anything but sin, and, and you, you are under the penalty of sin. If you're a believer, someday you will be free, completely free, from the presence of sin. We can't even imagine what that's going to be like. Your best day pales in comparison there will be a day, and this is our hope in Christ, there will be a day that we will be completely free from the presence of sin. The gospel destroys your pride if you're a believer. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us that it fills us with power to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. But the gospel ruins those who reject Christ. Because here's what happens. If you're rejecting Jesus, let's say you're here today or you're listening to this sermon and you are hearing the gospel message and you walk away and you say, I don't want that. I don't want him. I don't believe it. The gospel is going to ruin you because it confronts you with your sin. It confronts you with your guilt and your shame, and it shows you that you are accountable to God for your sin, that you are responsible before God for your response to the gospel, and there is such a profound difference, there is such a profound contrast between people who believe and people who don't, and that contrast is as strong as east and west Dark and light, heaven and hell. It's very easy for us to think that, you know, people that aren't believers are closer to us than we think in terms of worldview or views and what have you. And the Bible makes it very clear they are diametrically opposed. You can't get further apart from one another. And they, you might be friends. I'm, I've got a lot of people who do not profess faith in Christ who I would consider friends, but they are enemies for the sake of the gospel. I don't treat them like an enemy, but they are opposed to Jesus. So there is such a profound difference in what we're seeing here in this passage of Scripture. And we see this in the Bible. Jesus takes people, again, from darkness 
to light, from death to life, from hell to heaven. And what you see in the book of Acts is the church is latched onto this. They are so Christ-centered. They are so founded upon Christ. They're in the word of God. They're praying. They're fellowshipping. They are on mission for Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They're not just saying, we're going to send out some extra special people on, on cool trips. They're saying, where I am, I am going to serve Jesus. I'm going to serve God's purposes, and I'm going to bring the gospel in concentric circles out from where I am to wherever God sends me. You've heard me say this a lot recently. Because this is true. This is what we should be doing as Christians. We should be bringing the gospel. This is our number one task as people who are worshiping God Almighty and are, are acknowledging the supremacy of Christ that we are to bring the gospel to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our places of work, to anywhere we go. And the church in Acts has been doing um, amazing things as the Holy Spirit inspires them. Jesus called his witnesses. He empowered them to preach the gospel. Uh, Jesus is, is purifying the church. He's still doing that, by the way. You just don't drop dead every time you lie, right? But the Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sins, and we confess and repent. That's what Christians do. And Jesus is at work in his church. They are preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit's empowering them, and God is stretching their faith through their trials. Stretching their faith through their trials. And God is scattering them far and wide. The gospel gets scattered as the church gets persecuted. And, and we come to chapter 13. And we've got this scene here. Right after Paul preaches the gospel in a synagogue of Jews and Gentile God-fearers. And we see the response. Now, I heard that some of you in your home groups were really chomping at the bit to get into the response last week. And let me just say this. When you get into your small group and you look at the, the questions we give you and you want to go further in the Bible, go for it. You don't have to keep all the rules about, oh, we have to do these questions in this order. You know, you want to get in the word. You want to exalt Christ. Uh, what's God putting on your mind about that? And come up with different questions. But you could have gone into the response if you wanted, okay? We are going to do that this week. We're going to look at the response. Now, the church in Acts is a going church. That's what you see in chapter 13. You see they're a healthy church. They're on mission for Jesus. They're the kind of church we want to be. They had spiritual leadership. They had spiritual worship, not just coming to a, a place and singing songs to, to, to God, but a worship that flows out of worshiping God in all areas of life and flows into our gatherings and out of our gatherings. They had spiritual leadership, worship, ministry, and they had spiritual warfare coming at them. There was opposition to the gospel, but in spite of all opposition, and we see this over and over again in, in the church, in Acts, in, in, in the history of the church, in spite of opposition, the gospel will be victorious. People are going to get saved. So people are getting saved. We, we saw that uh, ongoing in this book, and we're seeing this as well today in this passage. This is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a kind of church that, that is trusting God to do a work that we can't do. Now, last week we saw Paul's preaching, 
And he's preaching in a synagogue, and he is proclaiming freedom in Christ. He is telling the people, freedom in Christ was planned before the world began. And it was promised in the prophets. It was provided at the cross in the shed blood of Christ. And we're proclaiming this message to you. So believers, if you say, you know, all I want to do is tell people about Jesus, then you don't have to worry what your message is going to be. It is going to be what this passage calls it, the word of the Lord. If you look at that phrase in this passage, it's like four times, the word of the Lord. That means the word about Jesus. It doesn't just mean the whole Bible, except in the, in the sense that the whole Bible points to Jesus. This is the message of Jesus crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and returning. And I keep saying this over and over again. You should memorize that, by the way. You should memorize this, that the message of, of the cross is of Jesus crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and returning. This is the message we should be preaching, the whole gospel message. So we come to this passage, and we see the response we see the response to the preaching. Now, God's costly grace, his mercy, his love in Christ, as well as his wrath against sin, and his offer of free salvation demands a response. You cannot walk away from that message and think, well, I'll just figure it out later. You either are with that message or you're against that message. Jesus said, you either gather with me or you scatter. So you have to make a decision when you hear the gospel message. You have got to figure it out. If you say, well, I want to think about it later, you've said no to Jesus, you said no to the gospel. But we need to understand the ramifications of this. We need to understand the ramifications of what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture so that we understand what is this telling us about Jesus? What is it telling us about ourselves? What is it telling us about all the people we know and that we will meet in our life? The question is, how is the gospel devastating? Well, you see it in this passage, in the response of those who believe and those who don't believe. That the gospel is going to devastate your soul or your sin. The gospel works in two distinct ways to two distinct groups of people, and we'll use the Bible words here from this passage, those that are appointed unto eternal life and those who are unworthy of eternal life. That's the two groups in this passage. Appointed unto eternal life, unworthy of eternal life. Now, there is a sense that all of us are unworthy of eternal life. Yes, we are all undeserving of God's grace. But here, in this context, people judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. They're basically saying, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't want to be his. I don't belong to him. And it's after hearing the word of God. They have heard the word of God. They have heard the word, and there's indicators on both sides of whether you're dead or alive spiritually. So if you ever wonder, am I really alive spiritually, this will even help you to figure that out. So the gospel devastates the souls of unbelievers, and they because here's why. It tells believers, unbelievers about who they really are and the danger they're really in. So the enemies to the gospel in this passage respond to the preaching very negatively. Now, God's response to the rejectors is give them what they want. I've said this many times before. If you want Jesus in your life, you will have Jesus in your life. If you do not want Jesus in your life, you will not have Jesus in your life. You see it in Scripture. You see it all the way through human history. You see it in your own experience. Those who, are, 
refuse to believe the gospel message have a very strong reaction against Jesus. I remember once I had the flu and they gave me some medicine and I had a very strong allergic reaction to the medicine. And it was scary. Here, they're having a very strong, you know, allergic reaction to the gospel and it should be scary for them. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So if you're not a believer and you're hearing this, you're like, well, what's so scary about that? Well, if you don't believe in Jesus, the Bible makes it very clear you will be separated from God forever in a real place called hell. And the fire never goes out. And there's, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, over and over again, you see people preaching the gospel message or preaching God's message to people and a variety of, of very... Um, Strong responses. The prophets preached a devastating message. It led to revolts. Many of them were killed. John the Baptist devastated people with a call to repent from their sins. He's paving the way for the Messiah to come, and he tells them to repent, and he tells them, you are a brood of vipers. You're, you're the offspring of snakes. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? They're probably like, you? You told us? He's killed. Jesus, the most devastatingly effective preacher of all, greatest preacher ever, says in Matthew 12, how can you speak good when you're evil? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Jesus is killed for it. Now, he is, he is in the midst of a plan that was put in motion before the world began, this plan planned before the world began, and now the apostles are preaching the same gospel message. Some are getting killed for it, and they're all getting persecuted for it. And we also see that the gospel de devastates the sin of believers because you are increasingly being sanctified by Jesus, and even though you struggle with sin, you are confessing your sins, you are repenting of your sins, you are wanting to be right with God. The, the professing believer that you need to be nervous about is the, is the professing believer that doesn't seem to have a pulse when it comes to sin in their life. That they, they, they don't confess their sins. They don't think that there's anything wrong and you really want to be nervous about them. And I realize that as a passage like this that shows indicators of life or death spiritually uh, and the devastatingly effective results of the gospel on both groups I realize that sometimes it's very hard to, to know if someone's a Christian or not. You know, one of the questions I like least is when someone asks me, hey, is that person a Christian? I'm like, well, why don't you go ask them? See what they say by their own admission. Um, I'm looking at their life and I'm thinking probably not, but I don't know. But it's sometimes tough to know if someone's really a Christian or not by judging uh, you know, what, what they're saying and what they're doing, right? We know this is a tricky thing. But this passage is absolutely clear. You know exactly who the believers are. You know exactly clear who the unbelievers are. Uh, the lines are drawn very clearly. So this is not hard to figure out. Uh, the difference between these two groups in this passage are as different as heaven is from hell. And what I want to do is point out three things you're going to see in this passage. Three things we see as we go through this passage that, that show us Things about those that are rejecting the gospel and show us things that 
about people who are accepting the gospel. And after I do that, I want to make uh, three observations that for believers on how we interact with people as we bring them the gospel. That's where we want to go. I first want to draw your attention to verses 45, excuse me, 42 to 45. And what you see is those opposed to the gospel are contradicting the truth by Satan's lies. They are contradicting, which means they're going against the gospel message. They're saying, what he just said, no. What he just said, the opposite is true. And so they're contradicting the truth by Satan's lies versus what the Christians are doing, which is continuing in God's grace. They are continuing as believers in God's grace. They are serving God's purposes. Verse 42 tells us there's an eager crowd that wants to hear the preaching more. They're they're begging to hear more preaching the next week. And verse 43 tells us they followed this group followed Barnabas and Paul, which means that they believed the gospel message and they're basically living as believers following Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas say, you need to continue in the faith. You need, we're urging you to continue in the grace of God. Keep following Christ. Keep growing in Christ. Continue in the good news of salvation in Christ. And this points us out to a very important biblical doctrine the perseverance of the saints, that if you are truly saved, you will persevere. The perseverance of the saints. What that means is that all who are justified by grace through faith in the shed blood of Christ will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians to the end of their lives. Now, we all know people that seem to be in ra- on rather shaky ground where they are professing to be a believer, but there is no evidence of God being at work in their life or them wanting God to be at work in their life. So we all know there's that quandary of, well, are they a Christian or not? And I would direct you to 2 Timothy 2.19 that has two phrases that are very helpful for us in this regard. Let's say you're a believer And you know you might go through periods of doubt, you might go through peaks and pits, you might go through seeming rejection of the gospel message, but here's what you'll know about a true believer. Repentance marks your life. A heart of repentance, a heart that wants to be right with God, will mark your life. And according to 2 Timothy 2.19, you can tell. You can tell who's a believer. You can't always know, but you can tell. There's a nuance there. There's no mystery Christians, biblically speaking. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. So in one sense, only God knows who really is a believer. But the next phrase shows us how we can tell. It says, Everyone who names the name of the Lord needs to abstain from wickedness. Abstain from wickedness. So if you're a professing believer and you're not abstaining from wickedness and it's an ongoing pattern in your life, it is fair for people who know and love you and care about you to say, are you really following Christ? Are you really a believer? And it might get to the point where they say, we're gonna treat you like an unbeliever and we're just gonna lead you to repentance and faith because you haven't answered the call of Jesus upon your life. 
the reality of your salvation will be proved by your continuing on with Christ. John 8, 31, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. Colossians 1.21 says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. But now, in Christ, you've been reconciled by his death in order that God may present you holy and blameless before him. And here's the qualifier. If indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And then 1 John 2, 19. I'd imagine there were tears on the page as it was being written. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. It grieves our hearts. I'm sure we all can think of people who have left the faith they once professed. And we don't know. Are they really a believer or not? But here's what we know. We want them to be. We want them to be. Moving on, verse 44. The next Sabbath, and here's uh, hyperbole, but almost the whole city gathers. So they're not in the synagogue. It's not big enough. They're probably in the stadium or some other bigger place. They had a 14,000-seat stadium in Antioch. Pisidia. And they're coming to hear the word of the Lord, the word of Christ, crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and returning. Very Christ-centered content of the teaching they're going to get. And when the Jews see the crowds, verse 45, they are literally filled with jealousy. They're completely opposing the gospel message. And they are so angry, they begin to contradict what Paul is saying. Verse 45 tells us they are reviling him. So they're hurling abusive speech at him, but the word in Greek is where we get our word blaspheming. They weren't just, you know, abusing Paul verbally. They were blaspheming against Jesus. Sometimes I I really have to wonder why we as American Christians seem to be so okay with people blaspheming Jesus. You would think that somewhere in the Bible, Jesus said, it's okay if people curse me. It's okay if people blaspheme my name. Because the way a lot of us operate is we put up with so much without saying one word about it as if we're supposed to somehow be invisible, secret Christians who who believe a message but can't offend anybody with actually telling them the truth. And then guess what else we do? We label people sinners because they do certain out-of-the-box sinful things. Here's the deal. All people are full of sin and doing all sorts of sinful things. And we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Do you know what unbelievers do? I've seen this so many times. Let's say you get a group of friends that they're unbelievers, and one of them does something really crazy sinful. 
they will say to them about themselves, I know, I'm a sinner. Because even to their standard, they've broken the rules. But here's the truth about them and us. We all do sinful things because we're sinners and we've got hardwired depravity. So you look around and you look in the mirror and you look at other Christians and you think, what is their problem? How come they can't snap out of that? Because they're sinful. And sometimes it breaks out in especially heinous ways or publicly embarrassing ways and we just, we recoil. We think, you have got to be kidding. How could anyone do that? Because somehow we've forgotten that we have a propensity to do that. And somehow we've started to think that we're something more special than we really are because there's the same root of sin in us. It just is if you're a believer, your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Nothing you could ever have done, nothing you could have ever deserved. But isn't it weird that we get all self-righteous about people who sin thinking that Christians somehow are above that and that non-Christians should somehow be, act like Christians. Now, if someone's professing, professing faith in Christ, you should absolutely expect them to obey God and his word. You should expect yourself to obey God and his word. We sin because we're sinful and we're not sinful because we sin. It's like the worm in the apple. The worm was in the apple as the apple grew. It was on the blossom and it, it, literally the the apple grew around the worm. And the worm is eating its, its way out of the apple. I used to think that the worm like said, that's a good looking apple. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into that apple. And it goes in the apple and it eats its fill and goes around and then comes out and says, I've had enough. Not the case. The worm is, is embedded in the apple just like sin is embedded in your heart. And it eats its way out from the inside because we are rotten to the core apart from Jesus. And we are all capable of unspeakable sin. But what you see in, in this passage, first of all, is there are people completely contradicting the gospel message as opposed to continuing on in Christ. People who continue on in Christ receive the gospel message. They want to live in light of that gospel message. They, when they sin, they want to confess that and move on and not be that way. Now I'll point your attention to a second thing, verses 46 to 49, that those opposed to the gospel are captured by Satan. They're enslaved to sin. They're literally wearing chains, proverbial chains to sin versus the Christians in this passage that are converted by God's power, that have been transformed by the grace of God, that are new creatures in Christ. They've been freed by Jesus to serve God's purpose. Verse 46 tells us that Paul and Barnabas speak out boldly against the blasphemy and they say it was necessary for the word of God to be given to you first, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. But you thrust it aside, you repudiate it, you reject it, you deny it. You disown the message of the gospel. So, as a result, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. What that means is you're saying, I don't want that. That's not me. I don't want to belong to Jesus. I don't believe in him. And it shows us very clearly man's responsibility for his sin. 
that each person is responsible for their own sin, that those who do not believe, as John 3.18 says, are condemned already because they don't believe in the only name of the Son of God. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the only name by which we, could be, we can be saved. They condemn themselves. 2 Peter 3 says scoffers are going to come in the last days. And guess what scoffers are going to do? They're going to scoff. That's what scoffers do. Scoffers scoff. These are scoffers coming in the last days opposed to the gospel message because they've been held captive by Satan to do his will. They're going to follow their own sinful desires. They're going to scoff because they're scoffers. They're even going to say, where's the promise of his coming? See, we believe our anchor for our soul as believers is that Jesus is exactly who he says he is in the word of God, and he's coming back. But they're saying, oh, no, no, he's not coming back. It's taking too long. And they forget that by the word of God, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, and they're being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The destruction of the ungodly, where the gospel basically lays them low and devastates them because they rejected the gospel. They're raging against God. They're cursed. They're enemies. They have no hope. They're slaves. And so Paul says, we're turning to the Gentiles. You know how mission-minded they were? You know, here, there, and everywhere, they're preaching the gospel. Verse 47, Paul says, you know what? God commanded us to do this. Isaiah 49.6, I made you a light for the Gentiles. I can just see the Gentiles saying, whoa, whoa. I've been around I've been around the synagogue, I'm a God-fearing Gentile, and I wasn't ever told that I was in there and that God's promises were for me without becoming a Jew. Huh. Wow, you've been keeping some news from me. So verse 48, the Gentiles hear this, they rejoice. They glorify the word of God. They are so excited about the gospel message, and it tells us, as many as were appointed unto eternal life were saved they believed this is one of the clearest statements in the bible of the sovereignty of god in salvation it affirms absolute predestination it, you cannot miss the doctrine of god's electing those who will be saved the greek word is tasso it's a military word that means to appoint to arrange, to assign. It's God, the commander, saying, this is your place. By the way, the Jews believed that God enrolled people in his book. God says to Moses, whoever sins against me, I'm going to blot out of the book. The prophet Daniel speaks of future deliverance for everyone whose name is found written in the book. The idea is here, very clearly taught in Scripture, that God chooses man for salvation, not the other way around. John 6, 65, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him by my Father. Ephesians 1, 4 says, We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Colossians 3, 12 calls us God's chosen ones. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says God chose you. Jesus says in John 15.16, you did not choose me, I chose you. You can't get clearer than that. 
Faith is a gift from God. And by the way, if you have trouble with this doctrine, you have trouble with the word of God, and ask God to help you understand it because the Holy Spirit will. The best way to, for, I love the best answer for this to me is if, if you go, well, I don't believe that, I would say, how dare we question God? How dare we question God? Belief in Jesus Christ is not just a matter of your own faith. It involves divine appointment. You're elected, you're chosen, you're not self-determined. If it was in your hands and my hands, we would mess it up royally. We'd lose it, we'd find a way to lose it. We can't even find our keys. How are we gonna keep ourselves saved? So as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and now we're in the neighborhood of something that a lot of Christians just struggle so much with, and I, my heart just yearns for every Christian to be solid about this. Eternal security and assurance of salvation. Where eternal security is the fact that you are saved forever by Jesus, and assurance of salvation is knowing that you're saved forever by Jesus. That if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Some of you are so tenderhearted that you think that if you commit a sin, that maybe God's going to like throw you out, you know, kick you off the island or whatever. And eternal security tells you what John 10 tells you. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. My Father, who has given you to me, is greater than all. Nobody can snatch you out of my Father's hand. Romans 8, 16, talk about assurance of salvation. The Spirit, if you're a believer, the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you are children of God. That you're being told by the Holy Spirit in your soul that you belong to Him. There's no reason why any Christian should have doubts about their salvation. Cling to this truth. Believe the word of God. That's what they were doing there. Verse 49, the word of God is spreading like wildfire through the whole region. You know what that tells me? New believers were getting birthed. And the question I have for us is, where are all the new believers amongst us? Where are they? You're reaching your neighborhood, you're reaching your family, you're reaching your friends, you're preaching the gospel in your classrooms and your offices and sports fields and everywhere you go, in the supermarket and wherever you go, because you're taking the gospel. That's what Christians do. It's our job. And I'm just wondering, where's the new believers? My thought is, a lot of Christians have too much time on their hands. They've reached everyone they know for Christ, so they think, well, I'm going to go fight against Christians now. You know, I've got all my gospel work. I'm going to go fight against Christians. Because you know what's interesting is, now we don't have any big fights going on at Grace right now, but I can guarantee you there's someone in this church who's got an issue with someone else in the church. And they're harboring it and they're festering it and blah, 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 blah. And guess what? Go preach the gospel. Repent of your sins and go preach the gospel. Can you say amen to that? I'm going to say amen to it. Amen. Now, here's what we're seeing here. Number one, there's people that are, that are totally totally contradicting the gospel message in this passage, but there's people that are continuing in the faith. So you got the contrast between believers and unbelievers. Then you got people that are totally captured by Satan, and then you got people that have been converted by the grace of God. Now there's one more thing I want you to see. Verses 50 to 52, 
Here's what you see. Those who are against the gospel are engaging in cowardly actions, cowardly actions, fighting against truth. They're serving Satan's purposes versus the Christians here that are being courageous by the Spirit of God and they're boldly telling the truth and trusting God. Verse 50, they incite the devout women of high standing, and I, I hate to admit it, but I hear that those were Italians. I, 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 don't, I feel like I'm throwing my own people under the rug here, but it's like under the bus here, but it's like, I, I'm serious. It, uh, I just have to tell you, that's what I heard. It, it, they were Italians, and they're great people. You know, it's my people, but um, they stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drive him out. They kick him out of Pisidian Antioch. You're out of here. Funny thing, verse 51, they don't come back and knock on the door and say, can we come back in? No, they go and they literally, they literally shake the dust off their feet. They do the most demonstrative thing to show that, they, that the people that are rejecting the gospel are condemned, that you can do in that, in that culture. This, was, this is what Jews did when they came out of Gentile lands, just shaking the dust off their feet. Jesus taught the 12 and the 70 to do this. If they reject the gospel, if they reject me, Shake the dust off your feet. Don't keep casting your pearls before swine. Tell them exactly what the condition of their soul is. You know, they had prayed for boldness. Acts 13, uh, Acts, um, I can't remember what, what, chapter 4, verse 13. They prayed for, to speak the word of God with boldness. And, and they're doing it. That's a bold action. They're, they're basically saying, you're condemned, you condemned yourself. And, and verse 52 is, is, is very amazing. The, the, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Why is that so amazing? Well, because those are the disciples left in Pisidian Antioch that didn't get kicked out. These are all those new believers. And they're basically saying, praise God that we've been saved. And we're going we're gonna to stay here with this persecution because we want them to be saved. We're not going to escape out of town and get out of the way of this. These are people that need Jesus. Think about anybody you know that keeps telling you no, no, no to Jesus. And you're just thinking, I don't know if I want to talk to you about this anymore. Of course, I don't want to offend you, so I'm not going to tell you everything I know about your situation. These disciples were controlled by the power of God. They were filled with joy, fruit of the Spirit. They were, jo they were joyful, they were blessed, they were, they were friends, they were pardoned, they were released, they had freedom, and they thought, we want to go out and just keep doing this, even though we're getting persecuted. Now, as I close, let me, let me give you some final thoughts about what you ought to do when you're interacting with other people. People who contradict the gospel, people who are captured by Satan, people who literally cowardly rail against the truth because that's all they know to do. Here's what you do. Number one, you got to show the truth humbly. You have to show the truth lovingly, patiently, kindly. you got to absorb the hits that come from those who oppose. Jesus grows his church in spite of opposition. you got the sheep and the goats and the, weed and the, we the wheat and the weeds and all that. you got to love people as Jesus loves people. you got to love your super eight family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, people who like you, people who don't like you, people you like, people you don't like. Let the gospel devastate your pride and you will become delighted in the gospel and want to share the gospel even with those who mistreat you. 
There's always backstory to everything, and I think loving people the way Jesus loves them leaves lots of room to understand where people are coming from before we evaluate them. There's a time and a place and leading of the Holy Spirit to correct, but how about just loving people, and as 2 Timothy 2.24 tells us, be kind to all. Kind to all. Show them by your life how much God loves them. Show before telling. Believe the Bible. Seek truth. Kill your sin. Repent of your sin. You say, well, I don't want them to know what I've done. Well, this will help your friends who don't know Christ to realize that you can admit when you're wrong and admit that you need Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel. You need Jesus. So be passionate for the supremacy of God and worship Jesus daily as individuals and households get into the word of God and prayer and, and um, worshiping God because you are, whether you know it or not, you're a lighthouse for the gospel. The light's either out or the light's either on. And the way we shine the light of the gospel is how we should live and help those in darkness. This is what a, this is what a lighthouse does, right? A uh, lighthouse on the rocky coast, you know, it helps ships know that there's danger. Well, the world expects you, unbelievers expect you to indulge in sin just like them. Now, you start breaking out with light from the gospel and your lifestyle breaks their expectations when you shine in a way that they don't expect it is warning them that they're off course we're to be like lighthouses to those who are sailing towards condemnation and a Christless eternity and hell so that they might be redirected on course towards Jesus, that, that maybe Jesus would grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth because they've been held captive by Satan to do his will. Second Peter 3 again, how come we forget this? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the coming day of God? So show them the truth Humbly, but secondly, tell them truth boldly. A lighthouse is bold. A light is on. The most loving thing you can do is relationally engage people and tell them the whole gospel truth. There is a missing part of our evangelism. It's missing from mine. It's missing from yours. And it's because we don't want to offend anyone. But guess what, people? The gospel is offensive. The gospel devastates the souls of those who don't believe because the gospel tells them that they're lost and they're sinful and they need the only Savior. The missing part of our evangelism is to tell people about the true condition of their soul apart from Jesus. It is not enough for us to say Jesus loves you He's gracious and merciful, and he offers you eternal life. And we walk away. I walk away so many times saying, well, you don't want that? Well, God bless you. And they are on their way to hell. Who were they dealing with here in Antioch, Pisidia? They were dealing with Jews, religionists, 
They were dealing with pagans, people involved in idolatry. Who are we dealing with? Who are we dealing with? The same crowd. We're dealing with religious folks, nominally professing believers. We're dealing with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and atheists and agnostics and however else you want to self-identify. And they're all armed with lies. And the difference between those beliefs and ours in the gospel is as different as light is from dark, as east is from west, and as heaven is from hell. And we have got to grasp that or else we will be asleep while people are heading to hell. We have honestly got to tell them the truth. I'll admit to you I'm afraid to do that often because I don't want them to get mad at me. The fear of man is a snare. Jesus said you'll die in your sins if you don't run to the only Savior. One last thing. Trust God completely in this process. You cannot make anybody believe. You cannot make one hair on your head white or black. You cannot get anyone to, to believe in Jesus. I don't care how clever you are or how gifted you are. The gospel saves. The word of God, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to change people's hearts. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To us who are being saved, it is the power, the dynamite, the devastatingly powerful power of God. Let's say I had two chains up, a long chain up here, and I brought two people up, and I said, let's see if you can pull these apart. You'd be like, we can't do it. We're, we're trying, we're trying, it, it won't work. But let's say I gave you a chain cutter. You just snap it and it's gone. Jesus is the only chain cutter. You can't break their chains of sin. There are people that are judging themselves unworthy of eternal life left and right. And those freed by Jesus to serve God's purpose must humbly show and then boldly tell the whole truth and trust God with the results. Which means we gotta get bolder we got to let, let our fear fall by the wayside. April 15th, 1912. Do you know what happened that day? The Titanic sank. There you go, right there. Give that lady a prize. The Titanic sank, but guess what? That could have been avoided. They had warning after warning after warning, and they said, our ship is unsinkable. And you know of people who have warning after warning after warning with the gospel and they say, I got this. I got this. But the gospel will devastate your soul or it will devastate your sin. Lord, thank you that we have this beautiful, devastatingly powerful gospel message of your grace in Christ, which is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But to whoever believes in you, it is beautiful life that we would never be put to shame when we place our faith in Christ. Lord, give us humble, living, and bold speaking to tell the truth and 
trust you with the results. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.